Thanks for checking out this week's sermon from Bonavista Baptist Church. We invite, encourage, and equip you to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We're exploring together the parables that are unique to Luke's gospel. And this is definitely a unique parable. I don't know if when you read it, you kind of scratched your head and said, what on earth is Jesus going to do with this? And so it's a parable that's caused us a little bit of trouble to know how to interpret it and how to apply it. So hopefully by the end of this message, we'll have a better idea of what Jesus is doing and what he's revealing about himself and about us during this parable. Well, it's a troubling passage, partly because all of the characters in the parable are scoundrels. I mean, they're, they're a little bit dishonest. They're a little bit corrupt. Uh, they take advantage of situations. Uh, take the unjust manager. The unjust manager is kind of the central guy in the parable. And some people have tried to soften his character a bit by saying, well, maybe he was just giving away his commission. Maybe he was just cutting the price by, by giving them a deal. But that's not it at all. I mean, this guy is called a dishonest manager for a reason. He was being dishonest. He was intentionally stealing from his boss in order to benefit himself. He cheated his boss. That's the kind of character he was. Well, what about the debtors? What about the the guys who came in and and got their debt cut in half or cut by a third? Uh, What about these guys? Well, they're not much better. They're very quick to take the deal. In fact, they're complicit in the whole scheme, aren't they? Uh, they're very eager to benefit from the plan. You know, uh, when I often go shopping with my wife, Christine, I'm always amazed at her integrity when we're shopping. We have to give a little extra time after we get through the checkout so that she can go through every item on the bill. And what she's doing is making sure it's correct. And so often she'll see oh, they charged us extra for this or charged us twice for this item. And so we'll go back to the counter and we'll get our 250 back because they charged us extra on something. But it actually goes both ways because sometimes as she's looking over the bill, she realized they haven't charged us for something. And so we will dutifully go back to the counter and pay for the bag of chips that they forgot to charge us. I would have been out of that building a long time ago saying, well, that's on them. But Christine has integrity, and so she carefully watches the bill to make sure it's accurate, and she's paying what she should. Well, these guys had no integrity in that way. Uh, They were quite happy to come in and have the bill cut, even though I'm pretty sure they knew that this manager had no authority to do that. And so these guys aren't exactly shining examples of morality either. What about the boss? What about the manager, the, the, not the manager, the, the rich, wealthy owner? Uh, what about him? Well, he's just a little bit off too. It's a little strange because at first he's going to fire the manager for the way that he's managing the money. But then when he comes back and finds out what the manager has done, he actually praises him. He goes, good job, buddy. That was really smart. So the whole parable is just a little bit twisted. It's a little bit strange. It it makes us um, hard to access the meaning of this parable, especially when we see that Jesus uses this parable as an example of eternal truths. So what do we do with this? 
Well, I want to give you just a few keys that might help to unlock the meaning of the parable. And some of this will be a refresher course, or some of it might be new information. Either way, I encourage you to reflect on this and explore these ideas a little bit further. The first key has to do with the household system at the time. And I've mentioned this a number of times before. In the household, there would be family members, for sure. There would also be slaves, and there would also be workers. There would be extended family. But the point is, the household system wasn't just a family unit. It was also an economic unit. It was a unit of economy. And so that's what the context is here. And within that household, there would be a character called the, in Greek, oikonomos. That's what this guy's called. The manager is the oikonomos. We get the word economy from this Greek word, and it could simply mean the household manager. So this guy was responsible for the financial structure of the household, the economic unit. And so the point of this, and and the point of the key is to understand that this guy, this household manager, was taking care of wealth that was not his own. Just keep that in mind as we go forward. Okay, a second key has to do with the system of patronage, which was very prevalent at the time of Jesus in the Roman world, in the Greek world, in the world of Palestine. Um, The system of patronage meant that you would have a patron, someone with wealth or prestige or position or power, and that patron would benefit someone else. But when I, as a patron, would benefit someone, I expected at least something in return. And the thing I usually expected in return was loyalty, first and foremost. But I also might call in the favor from time to time. That part is so very important because that's the only way to make sense of what this unjust steward is doing, the unjust manager, because by cutting other people's debt, he's not just doing them a favor. He's actually indebting himself to them so that when he loses his job and he's out on the street, he can go knock on their door and say, hey, remember me? Remember that thing I did for you? I'm calling in that debt. And he would have to be welcomed into their house. He would be fed. He would be housed. He would whatever. He was insuring for his future. So just keep that in mind. He was creating future security by leveraging the system of patronage. So the household, the system of patronage, and then one last thing, something that Jesus often does. He makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He does this lots of different ways. Uh, One of the uh, ways that we explored a few weeks ago is in the passage where it says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You see how Jesus does that? He argues from sort of this lesser argument to make a greater point. And we see that happening again and again in this passage all the way through. Jesus says, you know, if you can't be faithful for a, with a little bit, there's no way you're going to be faithful with a lot. So you see that's all playing out as well. Those are really key things if we're going to tap in uh, to this passage. So why does Jesus seem to praise this dishonest manager? Well, it's not for his dishonesty 
but it's for the way that he acted wisely with what he had in front of him. So here's a couple of things in which this guy was very wise. First of all, he was wise in that he accepted the inevitable. He was about to be terminated, and he realized it. He didn't argue with it. He didn't try and plead his cause. He just knew that it was inevitable. That's very, very important. He was about to be terminated. He knew it. He accepted it. That was wise. Another thing that was wise was that he recognized that he had a window of opportunity in order to act. He had a short time frame in order to do something with his remaining time. That was wise. And a third way that he was wise is that he used that time to prepare for his future. This guy was future-oriented. He was ready to look beyond his termination point to see what lay in the future and prepare for it. And Jesus is saying that is also very, very wise. So Jesus isn't saying, be dishonest like this guy. In fact, he's saying something quite different. He's saying that, that if this dishonest manager had the wisdom to take action to secure his immediate future, how much more should you and I take action to secure our eternal future? That's a big part of what's going on in the parable. I want to read you a quote from William Barclay because I think it drives home uh, this idea for us. He says this, If only people would give as much attention to the things which concern their souls as they do the things which concern their business, they would be much better people. Over and over again, a person will expend 20 times the amount of time and money and effort on pleasure, hobbies, gardening, and sports as one does on faith. Our Christianity will begin to be real and effective only when we spend as much time and effort on it as we do on our worldly activities. So how do we learn from the passage today? What what do we take away from this? Well, I think like the unjust steward, we have to be wise in certain ways. First of all, we have to accept the reality of our termination. (laughs) That might be an awful way to put it, but the reality is this. Hebrews 9 Hebrews 9 makes it very clear. We are all destined to die once and after that face judgment. We might fight it. We might deny it. We might think we can postpone it. But that's the reality. There's the reality of our termination. And we would be wise to admit it, to acknowledge it, and to accept it. The second thing, just like the dishonest manager, we need to recognize our window of opportunity. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I think so often people think, well, you know, I'll just put off becoming a follower of Jesus until I'm a little bit older or until I have things in, in order in my household or, or, or whatever. Or I'll, I'll begin to serve God when, you know, this whole COVID-19 thing is over until things settle down. Then I'll look for ways to serve God. And, and the Bible says, no, now is the time. Right now, this is your window of opportunity in order to know God, to love God, to serve God. So take it. Be wise like that guy did and take this window of opportunity. And then, of course, just like that guy who prepared for his future, 
we need to prepare for our eternal future. We, we need to think beyond the grave. We need to be more aware that this life isn't all there is, that there's something that happens after death, and we need to be prepared and preparing for the eternal future. You know, ultimately, the dishonest manager threw himself on the mercy of his master, and it worked out in the end. And in a similar way, we need to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, knowing with confidence because of Jesus that he will receive us with mercy. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's how we prepare for our eternal future. But then Jesus goes on to say there's still more that can be done as we think about eternity and as we prepare for life beyond the grave. Because he says this, and it's a little bit cryptic in the passage. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I encourage you to ponder that one for a little bit more. Maybe talk about it with your family or friends or in your small group this week. What does that mean? Well, I think partly it means this. Just as the unjust steward recognized that he only managed the wealth of his master and did not own it, so too I think we need to acknowledge that we are simply stewards of the time and possessions that we have. We're not true owners of these things because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We are also stewards of all that we have. And so we should use it wisely and we should invest it in eternal things. How do we invest in eternity? How do we do that well? Because it's a theme that comes up again and again and again in the teachings of Jesus. Just listen to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus taught, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the heart of Jesus. Prepare for eternity, but also invest in eternity. Well, here's maybe three eternal things that we can invest in, because I often struggle with that. What does it mean to invest in eternity? What does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? Well, maybe we need to start looking at the things that are eternal and give time, attention, attention, and even money in those areas. Well, one of the things that the Bible says is eternal is the Word of God. In Isaiah 40, it says that the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So anytime we invest ourselves into God's word, we know that we are investing in something that is eternal. And so when we read it, when we reflect on it, when we memorize it, when we share it with others, when we make sure that people have access to it, we are doing eternal work because the word of God itself is eternal. You know, one of the favorite things that I got to support when I was with Canadian Baptist Ministries was international theological education. I know often it was easy to raise money for disaster relief, and we need to be engaged in that way. And it was easy to raise money for lots of other programs. It was actually really hard sometimes to raise money for theological training. And yet I saw again and again in, in Lebanon and in Bolivia and in India 
how theological training, training men and women to know the word of God and share the word of God had the greatest rewards because we're dealing with real eternal stuff when we deal with the word of God. Well, here's another thing that's eternal. The human soul. Uh, Ecclesiastes says this, that God has placed eternity in the human heart. And I think partly that passage is saying that there's this longing in each and every one of us. There's this kind of knowing that there's something greater than this, something beyond the grave, that God has placed the sense of eternity in each human heart. That's why in John chapter 3 and 16 it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Or in Romans 6 and 23, and it says that although the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this idea of eternity and that the human soul participates eternally means that when we invest in another human being, when we invest in the human soul, that we are investing in eternity. Okay, one last thing to think about, and I'm sure you you can come up with your own list of eternal things that we find in the Bible. Here's one last thing. The love of God. The love of God is absolutely eternal because God is love. I love the passage in Romans chapter 8. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is eternal. And so when we participate in the love of God, on knowing the love of God, in sharing the love of God, in living the love of God, we are participating in eternal stuff. These three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. When we love others and when we love God, we are participating in eternal things. We're investing in eternity. So if this unjust manager in the story was smart enough to prepare for his own future, how much more should we as children of light prepare for and invest in eternity? So let me ask you the question. First of all, are you prepared? Have you given any thought to what happens beyond the grave? And are you ready for it with confidence, knowing that you have eternal salvation through Jesus Christ? Is that your reality? But also, how are you investing your time and your talents, your treasure in eternity today? Those are questions worth asking.